Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. GDIY Spotlight is a monthly bonus episode highlighting nonprofits whose missions support hunting, dogs, dog training, and or conservation. At the end of the month, we donate 10% of Patreon proceeds to the featured organization. While the financial donation may not be much, it's our way of getting the message out and garnering more support for the causes that are important for all hunters, gun dog owners, and conservations. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash gundogityourself to help support these great organizations in addition to helping out our podcast. We really appreciate all of our patrons, and as always, gundog it yourself. All right, everybody, we have Ben Jones with RGS and American Woodcock Society. Ben, how are you doing tonight? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Doing great. Thanks for coming on tonight, Ben. Thanks for having me. Good to be with y'all. Well, we appreciate it. And so we thought it'd be a great time. You know, we do a, a monthly spotlight episode with with nonprofits that deal with with conservation, dogs and and hunting and, and everything. And with the with the current climate and changes that RGS is currently going under, we thought now would be a better time than any to get you on and talk about everything that's that's going on. Oh man, it's an honor to to join you in that. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh uh, there's probably some folks out there that may not know who you are. You're the president and CEO of Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. Did I get all that correct? Yeah, that's right. For whatever reason, is president and CEO, but <laughs> I'll, I'll take them both. That's fine. Yep, I got you. So tell us a little more about yourself, where you're from, what's your background? All right. Well, um, I've been in this position at RGS. It'll be two years in June. And before that, I worked with our state wildlife agency here in Pennsylvania, having, you know, by all accounts, what was my dream job. I was overseeing all the habitat programs with our state wildlife agency on public and private land. And here in Pennsylvania, we're really blessed with a million and a half acres of state wildlife management areas, another 2.1 million acres of state forests, you know, 400,000 acres of state parks, a lot of that 
is huntable, a half a million acre national forest. So, you know, one of these states that just has a, a wealth of public lands. And uh, within the Game Commission on our private lands programs, we also had about 2.3 million acres of private that were uh, under agreement with the Game Commission and open for hunter access. And in that, there were also some funds we could use for habitat management. So that was my gig before I came to the Rough Grouse Society um, here in my home state of Pennsylvania. So I grew up here and um, have, have always hunted. My earliest memories were in the woods and well before I was old enough. And at that time I was 12, old enough to carry a gun. I remember tagging along with my dad he would you know take me along i appreciate what this meant now but he'd take me along when he was bow hunting or spend a lot of time with him um running our beagles too uh, we always had beagles around growing up yeah. so just from my earliest memories absolutely was just infatuated with the outdoors and hunting and um my parents always just were kind of they just always kind of laughed I, from my earliest um, memories was just driven to make a profession out of this too. So, um, that, that's what happened. And I, I went to Penn state to take up wildlife management and realized pretty early on there, the habitat management was something I really wanted to focus on. I grew up in an agricultural community working on dairies. So I was really connected with this land wildlife idea, started to focus on habitat management and realized really quickly there that, uh, I've I've, rather, I've got to get some chops in forestry too, and you know in this whole thing as a wildlife student and crossing over into forestry, I realized that a lot of times the the people in the wildlife science field didn't speak the same language in the as the people in the forest science field, and so that kind of bridging that gap, riding that you know that fence or whatever became kind of a career goal for me where I was a, a wildlife forester and um, left Penn State, went all the way to southern Mississippi to work on turkey research down there, looking at forest management and prescribed fire and what that meant to turkeys and quail and a whole bunch of whitetails, of course, a whole bunch of other things. And then made it halfway back home and worked on the Nantahala National Forest through the University of Tennessee. I did my doctorate there and actually studied rough grouse for five years, day in and day out for five years, and looking at grouse survival, reproduction, habitat use, but all of it related to how forests were being managed. And so it was after I finished that work in about 2006 that I came home to, to Pennsylvania, landed a job with the Game Commission, and um, told you about the rest from there. All right. So it sounds like a long, wide ranging journey there to get to RGS. And, and mm -hmm. most of our listeners are going to be familiar with RGS and AWS. But for, for those who may, may be listening for the first time and haven't heard you on another podcast or any of the other podcasts that have covered this, just give everybody a quick rundown on the purpose and mission of RGS. I'd love to. The Rough Grouse Society, RGS, was founded in 1961. So uh, we're coming up on our 60th anniversary. Uh, and the Rough Grouse Society was started in, a lot of people don't realize this, but Monterey, Virginia. So it was started in the mountains. 
And it, it was some gentlemen that were um, really in into conservation and into upland hunting. And it's almost like they could foresee some of the issues down the road that we were going to face in conservation. Uh, but they started this group to focus on forest wildlife, called it the Rough Grouse Society. And, you know, since it was started, a tenant of the Rough Grouse Society really has been basing decisions and building programs based on what does the science tell us? So the science of wildlife management, the science of forest management, those have been tenets of the Rough Grouse Society all along. And it's as true today as it ever was. So in about 2014, as as most of your listeners can appreciate, you know, grouse and woodcock are kind of this, you know, almost real interesting synonymous mixed bag in the uplands. So in 2014, realizing there was a lot more opportunity on geographies where rough grouse haven't ever been, there was some opportunity to work for American Woodcock. The American Woodcock Society kind of as a, a partner sister organization was also formed. So now we're RGS, the Rough Grouse Society, and AWS, American Woodcock Society, under kind of one umbrella. Very cool. So uh, RGS and AWS have come a long way in almost 60 years, and I'm sure you receive a lot mm-hmm. of pressure all the time that's like, well, it started in Monterey, Virginia. When are we going to get grouse back in Monterey, Virginia, right? <laughs> Well, for sure. And for, <laughs> for me personally, I mean, I lived with grouse for five years in the Southern Appalachians and uh, I'm a mountain grouse hunter myself and here in Pennsylvania, you know, it's very different from when you go to places like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, or even, even up to uh, New Hampshire to hunt. Sure. Um, it, it's very similar here in Pennsylvania as what I encountered in North Carolina. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel really personally connected with mountain grouse, no doubt. Yeah. So RGS has just gone through uh, some big changes. Let's start with the way things used to operate, and then you can kind of bring us up to speed with with what's changed and why it's changed and all that. Well, for the past about 10, 20 years or so, uh, the Rough Grouse Society had um, regional biologists, and these biologists would coordinate on habitat projects and conservation and uh, keep up to date on the science and help deliver habitat projects, working with various, various partners within their regions. So it was essentially the Northeast, which was New York and New England. And then the Mid-Atlantic and Southern Appalachians, which was a huge area from Pennsylvania all the way to North Georgia, Eastern Great Lakes, uh, and Western Great Lakes. So there was a regional biologist uh, in each of those regions that did a diversity of things. And among them, they worked on um, habitat projects in close concert with with our chapters. All right. So people were able to understand that process pretty simple. It was a direct, mm-hmm. just biologist worked within a certain region and you found projects and, and you made them happen. So right. let, describe the, the new process that RGS is going into right now. Yeah. And there was, a, you know, there's been a ton of great work done through that model over the years. 
And essentially, you had some the chapters raising money to support the organization. And then with, uh, for example, the drummer fund, some of those funds stayed local. The chapters worked with the regional biologist. And depending how much, how much funding had been raised there through those largely events, then there could be anywhere from five to $50,000, say, per year available for habitat projects. And uh, $50,000, but to me, I mean, that sounds like a, a lot of money. But when you start putting it on the ground in habitat projects, and some of them that cost four hundred, five hundred, even upwards of $1,000 per acre, you're kind of limited on what you can accomplish with that model just based on how many fun, how much funding you have available. Right. And so um, when the opportunity came up to work with the Rough Grouse Society, I met with the, the board of directors at the urging of a friend of mine, hey, you should apply for this. And I had seen some opportunities for the Rough Grouse Society to expand. When I was working with the state agency, we worked with a lot of partners, uh, and in particular, Pheasants Forever. And we were pulling in grant money and collaborating and working together. And actually, at one point, I um, was we had a partnership with Pheasants Forever to hire foresters to help us work on largely grouse projects and forest habitat projects in Pennsylvania. And I thought, boy, we're, that's a that's a heck of a thing. I'm working with Pheasants Forever to hire foresters. This then isn't quite <laughs> meshing in my mind. And uh, pursued some things with the Rough Grouse Society at that time. And, you know, the structure just really wasn't there. Pheasants Forever had a much different structure where, where they could suit those needs. And so that kind of, you know, I guess pun intended, stuck in my craw a little bit. I saw it as an opportunity. And um, when I had the chance to meet with the board of directors through this interview process, I said, you know, there's, there's just an awful lot of opportunity to expand the mission impact of the Rough Grouse Society. And as it turned out, they had been thinking about the same things. Uh, they had seen this, you know, organization with this great history that done, had done all this great work, but they felt like there was more that the organization could do. And they had watched the exponential growth of groups like Ducks Unlimited and Pheasants Forever just increase in that impact. And they wanted that for their organization, the Rough Grouse Society as well. So that's kind of where I met with the board. And it was my mandate when I was brought, brought on as CEO to increase our, our mission impact from there. So I was kind of brought on to, to grow these programs and expand what we could do. Okay. And so you, you worked on expanding this program. And so since mm -hmm. I've been involved in, in this world, in the dog world, grouse hunting and everything for five or six years, all I've heard is people say RGS needs to change. We need to do more habitat work. Well, RGS is changing mm -hmm. now. And with, with change comes backlash. A lot of the time you're going to hear, you're going to hear a lot of, a lot more negative than positive. It's like uh, our mutual friend Parker Street says, you always hear about the burnt biscuits, right? <laughs> so you can cook dinner and you don't hear about the good chicken. You only hear about the burnt biscuits. And so right. the thing that we wanted to talk about tonight is we kind of we kind of compiled a Q&A because this change, it's different for a lot of people and it's a completely different system. And so I wanted yeah. to ask you in a way that 
everybody's raising concerns and their specific questions and hopefully we can address that and it can kind of shed some light and and make everybody a little more comfortable with the switch yeah and before we dive into that i want to reiterate something that you said in my nearly two years at the rough grouse society i do not recall hearing y'all are doing such great work. You're doing all you can do. And you know, this is just great. I can not count how many times I heard in various, as you can imagine, various tones and put various ways of the rough Gauss society needs to do more. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that is definitely what I was hearing. And you're right that, you know, change, change is a difficult thing. It's, for me, just like everybody else. So, so yeah, you've heard a lot I'd about burnt biscuits and then you make change and you hear more about burnt biscuits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes, but it's, but it's from that, that change is made and you move things forward and that's never easy. And, you know, that's why it's, it's much easier to get caught in the trap of just keeping things the status quo. Right. So, because everyone's used to it. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the, all the folks that I promise not to hang on to this analogy for too much longer, but all the folks that <laughs> complain about burnt biscuits, once they see, you know, how good the change will be, they'll only talk about the chicken at that point and how good it was. You know what I mean? So, well, that's, that's where we're at right now. I, I have this, this, these decisions weren't made overnight. You know, I've been working for a couple of years looking inside and out at all the business models of RGS, other groups, how other groups are making things happen. And, uh, I'm just excited to start showing some of those results. And, you know, we've got in a lot of ways, breaks have been put on things here with the pandemic. But uh, I'm confident that when when things open back up and we emerge out of this, we're going to be a much different organization and doing more. For sure. So, so real quick, just in the simplest terms, describe the the current process that y'all are moving to right now. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned to you early on, there was kind of this um, this divide a lot of times between the forest management side and the wildlife management side. And I experienced this in a state wildlife agency as well. And so what we're looking to bring in and um, with rough grouse and woodcock and so many of the forest wildlife that we like to hunt, I mean, talk about whitetails, black bears, uh, quail, forest management and the harvesting of timber is such an important part of that habitat management. So what we're looking to bring in here is just this broader perspective beyond just biology of the species and the wildlife, but this bigger knowledge of um, things like forest markets and forest economics and the logistics of timber sales. Because to do the work that we need to do at the scale we need to do it. And Nick, I know you spend some time on the Cherokee National Forest. Sir. There's a lot of habitat work that needs to be done there. Absolutely. They can't be done 10 acres at a time, $50,000 at a time. It's got to be at a much larger scale and the economics that need to come with that. So 
we're just looking to broaden out that skill set to somebody that understands all those other aspects of forest management so we can start getting this done to scale. So that's that's kind of one of the defining features there. We're bringing in a more holistic skill set to accomplish some of these tasks. And that, you know, at, at face value, that makes all the sense in the world. And and in talking to a bunch of people, getting ready to talk to you, like I said, we were wanting to address specific questions and concerns of people that were raising them. And, and it seems like, it, again, at face value, everything sounds great. More sustainable financing, understanding markets, trends, making it work for you. In return, it produces more timber cuts, more trees hit the ground. But it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it seems like in a lot of things in life, when you start talking about economics, markets, trends, whatever, there's kind of a disconnect between people not fully understanding the concept. And instead of really, mm-hmm. instead of really understanding it, they kind of lash out because they don't want to figure it out. So dive real deep into there. Pretend like I'm the most uneducated person in the world. It shouldn't be a far-fetched thing to do. And describe to me how... This, this financing really works from there's a project that you want to get done and how is that going to actually work as far as bringing more money into the equation? Mm, yeah. Well, the first thing I definitely want to start with and be very clear on is, you know, this isn't the ad- abandonment of an old financial model. Like all of a sudden, the locally raised funds, we're not interested in that and we don't care about chapters and those funds aren't important and nobody should fundraise. That is absolutely not the case. And in fact, and the core of this for me is taking that $50,000 or whatever that's raised within a state and being able to leverage it by four, five, 10, even more times to get more work done. So if we can leverage that into some commercially viable timber sales, we're going to be able to get a lot more work done. So I want to start with that, that this isn't a complete replacement of all the other fundraising we have. This is kind of diversifying our portfolio as a business of funds coming in. And there's a case in point that we needed to do that. Right now, for the past three months, we had our you know, face-to-face banquet fundraising season completely canceled. And when you have all your eggs in that one basket, then you're at risk when something like this comes up. And even before this, we knew that interest in the traditional banquets was kind of declining. So we needed to think about new ways to engage our members right. and raise funds. But we also need to think about ways to bring other funds in. And if you look at other conservation groups in this space, they're not completely dependent on one form of fundraising. They do lots of different things, including engaging with markets. Right. And you, me and you talked about this uh, about a year and a half, two years ago at the Kentucky banquet about the, the banquet model mm-hmm. needing addressing. And and they're just, mm-hmm. you know, the, there was cause for concern with that. But back to this yeah. point, you know, let, let's just talk about, you know, there's a public land or a private land project. How is this, how is RGS actually going to receive money from the cells to then reinvest in future projects? Just like I said, pretend like I'm uneducated and, and <laughs> explain the, the transaction right. process to me. Good. You got me back on track. All right. Let's start with uh, one. And, 
and here's the thing. This is kind of, this is the framework or the model within any given state because things differ drastically from habitat condition to forest condition to markets to opportunity to everything from Tennessee to New Hampshire to northern Minnesota. There will be lots and lots of different business plans that are tailored to opportunities in each state or even regions within a state. So let me give you one overall example. And this is uh, speaking to public lands and specifically to national forest. So we can engage in something that's, you know, this is capital S stewardship contracting. It's a program um, within the forest service where third party partners like the Rough Grouse Society, National Wild Turkey Federation has done an amazing job at stewardship contracting over the last 10 years. In that process, in an agreement with the Forest Service, which we have these agreements in place, we can work to help the Forest Service accomplish timber sales on national forest land. And the idea is that we build their capacity. We're not replacing Forest Service staff but they're always stretched thin with personnel and funding. So we can help them get more work done, especially on wildlife focused projects. So we quite literally through this agreement can help the forest service run timber sales. So if you've got all the federal requirements, the NEPA requirements are there, we can go in under the direction of the forest service, help to mark, help to inventory, and then help to put out for bid and help to administer and then retire a timber sale. Okay. At so, the conclusion. Okay, go ahead. You have a question. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say this is starting to make a little bit of sense to me now. Nick, Nick's pretending to be dumb, but I'm I'm totally dumb here. So, uh, okay. <laughs> so this is this is starting to make sense. Where I've always viewed the problem for the for grouse and woodcock as. There's not enough early successional growth habitat. How do we fix that? We need to cut more mature timber so that we have, you know, a, a more diverse forest. So mm-hmm. you mentioned the Cherokee. I think like less than 1% of the Cherokee National Forest is early successional growth habitat. So, you know, my, my question of this is how does all this change put more trees on the ground? Like if the problem was we need to cut more trees basically. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've always viewed it as the forest service saying, no, no, you can't cut more trees. And RGS is going, but you don't understand. We need to cut trees. So maybe I haven't understood the problem correctly. Well, well, I think you're right. And it can get to a point where there's some finger pointing back there and you, you identified the problem and something my father-in-law always loved to say, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. <laughs> That's and right. So when I look at the challenges that the Forest Service faces, and again, it's budget cuts, it's issues with staffing, uh, all the other public perception issues and pressure against cutting. Sure. Let's be part of the solution there and not part of the problem with just being another finger getting pointed. At yeah. Them. And stewardship contracting lets us do that. So the next step, as I told you, we could go in, help the Forest Service, help administer the timber sale. Through the stewardship contract, the revenue from the sale of that commodity product, man, let's talk economics, the sale of that timber, (laughs) 
through the stewardship contract, that money stays on the district. Mm. It doesn't go to the federal treasury to be allocated to other things in the government or the Forest Service. It stays on that district. From there, we can reimburse our time as the Rough Grouse Society that we spent with our foresters on the ground. So it didn't cost us a thing. That's all we want to do. We want to reimburse our time. Then funds available after we reimburse our time, we can reinvest on non-commercial projects, things like shearing shrubs for woodcock or improving hunter access and a bridge to replace a Ford to give us access to more forest management. All those funds stay right there on the district. So that's kind of that simplified model that I think y'all probably saw where we invest 70,000 to hire some foresters. This timber sale comes in through stewardship. We recover all of that 70,000 and there's probably some left over to do more work or to put toward the next project. So that whole thing cost RGS nothing. We recovered our costs and we also had some more funds to reinvest for more management. Gotcha. So, so while we're on the stewardship contracting and and I'm going to be completely honest with you on this one, I had a bunch of people tell me the same exact thing, but none of them could tell me why. Uh, I, I asked a couple times and I did a quick Google search and I'll get to that here in a second. Uh, with the stewardship program, uh, uh, there's, there's claims that that stewardship contracting, the BLM stewardship agreement process does not apply to the Southern Appalachian region. Is that true? Because that's where the Google search came in. I did a quick Google search and that can get you in trouble, but (laughs) there currently was not any proposed program listed on on the site and the information that i found in the southern region so i didn't that is not true okay (laughs) i figured that i I figured that was the answer but i wanted to touch on it because it came up like four or five times so (laughs) we we have a master stewardship agreement in place with the united states forest service as do some other groups in both regions eight and nine, which is the entirety of the Southeast up through the Mid-Atlantic, Northeast and through the Great Lakes states. So in fact, we do have capital S stewardship uh, master agreement with the Forest Service uh, across that entire area. Now, each forest and even within a forest, some of the districts can look at stewardship contracting a little bit differently. As you might imagine, in, in such a, a large agency, there are some that are, are going to be really receptive. Yeah, bring the houses that are going to be a bit skeptical. Uh, but it is a program that's available. And what we're doing now is working with each national forest as a, as a partner, not as a finger pointer, to say, we want to help you get this done. And uh, some examples, had uh, we had meetings, oh gosh, how long ago has it been? five or six months ago together with national wild turkey federation about stewardship contracting on the cherokee uh similar conversations are going to be occurring with the nanahala and the pisca similar conversations on the chippewa and minnesota and um for national forests everywhere the allegheny national forest has done stewardship contracting in pennsylvania so it's there as a program for all of these national forests to use. 
We just need to, to work with each national forest and see exactly what their needs are. And as I mentioned, build a little bit different business models to be tailored depending on where you're at. The exact model on the Chippewa where there's a bunch of Aspen isn't going to be one that we use on the Cherokee. Right. But different makeup and needs are different. and Sure. So, the timber is different. The values are different. Yeah. So, so that... I can't, like I said, there was four or five times that came up and, and I, I can't say one way or the other. And that's why I wanted to address it with you on the stewardship contracting. So that kind of answers mm-hmm. a lot of the major concerns on the big, big bodies of land. And, and that's primarily what we're after, especially down here in the South. Like you said, the, the Cherokee and public land in Tennessee far outweighs mm-hmm. what private land is. But let's go into the private land section of this real quick Mm -hmm. and i don't want to leave out the daniel boone either because we've had some fantastic conversations about expanding for forest stewardship together with national federation and rocky mountain elk foundation Mm -hmm. and other partners on the daniel boone too so i i know that's that's close to okay good deal yeah it's it's nice to hear that you're partnering with people because i've always viewed it as finger pointing like like rgs is this organization that's that's fighting for its members and right if fighting's not uh necessarily the way to get things done all the time like if you partner up and and work together with the forest service then it'll actually equal more habitat i mean that makes that makes sense to me um before we move on i just i have a question about timber market so i know that the Mm -hmm. the market's going to drive some of this is it as simple as you know the price of white oak is up so that's what's going to drive the cutting is like is it that detail that's going to drive the cutting or is it going to be more prescriptive for what the species needs because that's just a concern of mine moving away from the biologist side to the to the forester side is you know, that the market could totally drive what's cut rather than what the species needs. No. So in Appalachian hardwoods, uh, you don't have very many, or if any at all, just pure species stands like you, you would have of Aspen and some sure. of the lake states. So you're always going to have kind of this potpourri of different timber. And those market ups and downs and preferences by species are always there. And so just because white oak markets are up isn't necessarily going to mean you are or aren't, or cherry markets are up, going to mean you are or aren't having a sale. As long as the, the, the general market is in good enough shape to make it viable to get an operator in there, cut the timber, recover their costs, and make it marketable, then um, those projects are going forward. And the rest of it kind of comes out in the wash because, okay, uh, white oak and something else is up, wild poplar's down. It it all kind of ends up even and out. Yeah. And I know I'm talking, you know, you're at the 10,000 foot level and I'm, I'm talking all the way at the ground right now, but I could just see it where, like, yep, RGS and the Forest Service are working together. We're going to cut more timber. And we went through the forest and plucked out all these uh, white oaks because that's what's viable right now. And it doesn't help the grouse. So, I mean, that's that's why I was asking. No. So, yeah, you'd have these projects set up. And where that will make a difference really is um, 
regardless, we're probably going to make enough to cover the forester time and getting the work done. And, you know, the loggers made a living, they're feeding their families where it's probably going to make a difference is how much you have left over to spend on other stuff. You know, do you have a hundred thousand dollars left over after you've covered your cost or do you have 70,000 or 30,000 left over to do additional habitat work? That makes sense. But the markets aren't driving uh, in large part where where you're cutting and when, because a lot of times when a sale goes out, um, it, just to say real quickly, a, another hat I've worn is as a co- consulting forester. I've kind of had a side business over the years uh, before coming to RGS. Um, where was I going with that? Well, we were talking about, you know, I was basically wanting to make sure that we were still going to get some, some general clear cuts and not just go out and yeah. and pluck out the valuable timber. And I think that's where it right. yeah. got you on forest consultation. Yeah, right. And so those timber values are, are going to vary. Oh, and I know what it was. So when you put out a timber sale for bid, a lot of times, you know, it's a two or three year contract. So markets can fluctuate you know, 10 times in a three-year contract. So you have no way of predicting that just because paint you put on a white oak tree now is this value, that that's the value it will be when it actually gets bought and or cut. So, so, so kind of before that question, I I was kind of steering the direction into private land. And and like we talked about the stewardship contracting kind of hits the, the big pieces of land that, that really needs the attention as far as public land and national forest, but private lands while smaller, it seems, you know, every little, little bit still helps. Right. And so with this new process, help me understand, say I'm a, I'm a landowner instead of, you know, unless I'm just perhaps passionate about the mission or something, why would I voluntarily get a fourth party involved in the timber sale? It, it seems like I, if as a landowner, I would just hire a forester who would take my timber to market and not get RGS involved at all. Is that just kind of an outreach issue for, for RGS or is there, or d- talk us through that. What, what would you say to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of different things depending on, Oh my gosh. And once you start talking about private lands, the <laughs> regional differences are why do people own land, the cultural pieces, the value of timber. So there are a lot of different business models potentially for this. Well, let's just stick so, to uh, Southern App. I know you're down here and let's stick to Tennessee yep. and North Carolina and, and go from there. Yeah. So you've got, uh, hopefully the, the landowners are going to work with a consulting forester. That's always a good idea to meet their objectives and maximize their value. And we've got pretty good networks across the country of consulting foresters. We're not looking to replace them by any stretch. But um, can we work with those consulting foresters to make sure that they have some wildlife components in what they're recommending to landowners? Sure. Or, or could there be some landowners that specifically want a, a wildlife forest? or so to speak, working on their ground and can RGS, and we do this in several states where we have you know, kind of a three, four day training program through our coverts program where we're training consulting foresters and landowners to do these things. So that's our role in some of those cases. 
I'll give you another example in Wisconsin. Right now we have forest wildlife specialists. And what they're doing is working with private landowners and they're helping them write management plans and management plans that can make them eligible for natural resource conservation service, federal farm bill funding through EQIP and, you know, alphabet soup, a bunch of different other <laughs> programs. So in that case, we're working on the private lands, helping them develop management plans, make them eligible for some funding for maybe invasive species control. And then hopefully a consulting forester is going to work with them, take that management plan, conduct the timber sales and do good work. And our key role there was getting that management plan written. And I know from the consulting forester side, that's something that um, you really, your bread and butter as a consulting forester is from commission on timber sales. And a lot of times writing management plans is a part of the business where it's hard to, to make money or break even. So if the Rough Gauss Society is writing those management plans, then that's good for the landowner. It's good for the consulting forester. And, you know, it's good for the local economics. And I will say that with those forest wildlife specialists, when you think about the business model for RGS, they're 90% covered by federal grant funding because they're delivering those federal programs. So when we look at our business model, how to staff more foresters out there on the landscape doing this work, that's an important part of the model too, is pulling in those federal funds to, to help us cover them. So you mentioned earlier that that you're working on partnership uh, uh, stuff with uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and NWTF. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of partnership in the works or discussions with like uh, QMDA or QDMA mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. you know anything like that that produces actual habitat because it's you know what's good for the bird is good for the herd. Is there kind of cross partners with with deer management and other other organizations that specialize in private land development and, and management plans. Yeah, we're we're always looking for opportunities to to partner, and I think this is a of a, a fundamental shift too to get rid of this idea of silos and competition among the groups. And for me, and I think this is the background of working with the state agency, the more partners we had working together, the more work we could do. So I look at QDMA and kind of their, their niche, their hedgehog is they're really good at the education piece. They really focus on that. And so if we can talk about how um, active forest management is really good for deer hunting, then that's going to be a good thing for rough grouse too. So there's a certain thing that QDMA can bring. There's another piece that RMEF can bring. There's another piece that National Wild Turkey Federation brings. As I mentioned earlier with Pheasants Forever, they've got this network of 200 farm bill delivery positions out there. And I mentioned we had some foresters in Pennsylvania. Makes sense for us to partner with Pheasants Forever and tie into those positions they've already got on the ground to get more work done. So, you know, the partnering opportunities are, are just incredible. Yeah. It, that makes a lot of sense that, uh, you're really wanting to partner with everyone. And it goes back to what you were talking about, you know, with finger pointing, uh, it's just really being 
a part of the solution to to partner with everyone, make everyone a part of the solution. So that makes sense. Uh, even with the private landowners, you know, I was talking to Nick about this and I said, I, I can't wrap my head around as a private landowner, why I would want to involve, you know, RGS, but it makes complete sense now that the, uh, I'm getting someone to come in and manage the plan for me. So any invasives, they're going to take care of those. And then the, the forest consultation is not coming out of my bottom line. It sounds like RGS is pretty much covering that, right? Yeah. Or, you know, the issue you see so much with consulting foresters is they say, I'm working with this landowner, got kind of this mess. And, you know, the landowner doesn't have the money to invest up front to get rid of this mess. Right. So it, many times their hand is kind of forced and they have to do some management and try to work around it. And it's not ideal. If we're working through NRCS to write them this federally approved plan, make them eligible for some money to get rid of the invasives first, then that consulting forester, he's going to be happy because, you know, his client now has an ideal situation to, to meet their objectives. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, like I said before, I, I could not wrap my head around how it would be sensible, <laughs> but it, it sounds like a great deal for a private landowner. Yeah, each each specific business model is different. So in stewardship, of course, you know, we're funneling all the revenue from the timber sales to more habitat work and to fund our position. That's clearly not going to be the case on most private lands. Right. And, and so with this new program, I mean, obviously this changes the, the financial stability to do more projects, to put more trees on the ground. And, and obviously that's what the species needs it needs the right habitat like what adam was saying earlier it, that's it very basic that's what this needs but there there have been other concerns that have kind of prevented trees falling on the ground than just the money or arranging projects and so since since i've been involved again i hear all the time that that the the concern wasn't necessarily finding projects it cut. It, the concern was that the grouse needs a lobbyist and not a designated forester is what I, I kept mm-hmm. hearing over the years. You know, whether you're fighting mm-hmm. anti-hunting people or the other conservationist groups that, you know, because there's, you know, a s- specific owl species out there and they don't want to cut trees down. You're, you're fighting a lot of special interest groups. How does this new program address that or, or does it at all? And we, and it's just a continued battle of reaching out and trying to make them see our side. Now you, well, there are several things here and every bit of this, you have to have multiple programs that are kind of working in concert. So you mentioned two other important areas there. One is the policy advocacy piece So uh, we're active in Washington, D.C., working on policy initiatives, and any of a number of policy things can come up that we recognize are going to impact forest management. So we're part of the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, which is around 40 of these conservation groups, all brought in under one umbrella called AWCP, and we all work collectively with a greater voice toward these policy issues. So Brent Rudolph, Rudolph, our policy director, 
he's working in DC with Joel Peterson from NWTF and this whole group of partners. And if something comes up and Brent sees, hey, this is going to impact forest management, he goes to the rest of the partners and say, hey, can we get together and address this perspective? And, and that's how we do it there. And then at the state level too, when policies come up, regulations that could really hurt our ability to manage forests, then we're getting engaged on letters of support, talking to legislators, um, working with very group, various groups like uh, uh, CSF, Congressional Sportsmen. So that's part of the whole approach as well as is having that policy and regulatory team working too so if you imagine your new forest conservation director he's given a heads up he or she is given a heads up to the policy team saying hey uh you know there's this there's this house bill in tennessee that's going to completely wreck our ability to do forest management uh we need to we need to get a letter writing campaign and educate our legislators about this so that forest conservation director gets a hold of the policy team and together they kind of go after that policy piece. Now, another part of the whole thing that you mentioned is the communications piece. And overall, people just, the general public doesn't understand the importance of forest management. You know, it's just such a black and white issue of cutting trees is bad. And you see the deforestation and the cutting in the tropics, which is and destructive and then in their minds they relate that to what happens in the Appalachians so we also need to come at this with a broad mass communications effort to educate people about forest management to release some of that negative pressure that forest management is bad so you've got the on the ground delivery you've got the policy piece and you've got the general communications piece you need to be hitting on all of them on all cylinders. So, so with this change and, and you stated it earlier is, you know, in the past it, it was really reliant on individual chapters, drummer funds, raising money through banquets, being active in your chapter, so on and so forth. So to speak to, is there a concern with this change with the bulk of the funding and the sustainability from this process coming from timber sales and reinvestment that maybe the um, human nature will take over within the chapters and people may not see that it's as necessarily a priority to continue pushing fundraisers and raising money and doing banquets for the local drummer fund. Are you worried about that at all that somebody says, well, we can do this all year long in hopes to raise $30,000, but that one timber cell gets 70. So why would we spend a year, you know, planning and pushing for this? So the biggest thing will be to say, well, that timber sale isn't going to happen without those locally raised funds because we use those locally raised funds to hire two forest tech for the past nine months that made that thing happen. Yep. So we've leveraged those local funds and they become that much more important, but they're not standalone funds anymore. They're funds that's going into a more diverse network that's getting more work done. So that timber sale and stewardship never happens if that local chapter didn't raise the funds to help us hire the four technicians to put the paint on the trees. Right. So this, there's no replacement. It's just diversifying and bringing more funds in. 
which then allows us to maximize those funds that are being raised locally. And in fact, none of this works if the locally raised funds go away. And that's what I wanted you to touch on because with, with the outrage of any change, this, this isn't just RGS specific. You have a lot of people just <laughs> complaining about burnt biscuits saying I'm canceling my membership over this. And, and I wanted to touch on that. It's still important that everybody that has been involved, stay involved and continue to push for this. Uh, I mean, it, that that's really all, all I was wanting to get out of that question. Really. It's more important to increase our membership and have more chapters and think about more creative ways of fundraising than ever. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, banquets, the, you know, the regular sit down banquets were waning in popularity. Um, I can appreciate that. So what's that mean if we have uh, a pig roast with, with bands and everybody comes out and has, has a good time and we raise some money or we're seeing a lot of interest in dog training days or oh. in shoots. So let, let's just update that whole thing because man, that, that grassroots chapter fundraising is more important than ever. We need it. Yeah. And that's what me and you talked about in Kentucky is, you know, everybody enjoys a good banquet from time to time, but it's, you know, when you've mm-hmm. been to one banquet, you've kind of been to all of them and, and going every <laughs> yeah. year to the same banquet over and over. It's, you know, yeah. it's like, let's change it up. Let's do something different and, uh, yeah. and, and get creative and, and do something that'll raise more attention, get new people out there. And, and, you know, that there's only so many RGS printed pictures that I can have on the wall right now. That's right. Well, and, and, yeah, like, and I, I, you know, I, I had heard it so much over the past uh, two years of we need to get more habitat work done and have a bigger impact. And that's going to ma- enable me to recruit more local members and get more people involved. So I can't tell you how many times I heard that we need to do more so that I can recruit more people. Well, yeah, I heard that. And when we think about this model, if we're, you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling the acreage, that to me is a recruitment tool. It's just a bigger footprint to, you know, more signs saying RGS habitat work going on. And that's going to raise awareness and people are going to say, what's this RGS about? There you go. Yeah. And, and like you said earlier, be, be part of the solution rather than the problem. You know, if there's folks mm-hmm. out there that still want to have the traditional banquets, take some initiative and organize a banquet and have your banquet. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong oh, yeah. with that, but there's, uh, you know, us millennials want to do different stuff other than banquets, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got, we still got a few banquets around that are just killing it year in and year out and yeah. some that are even growing. So, well, and, and I'm mean, not belittling yeah. banquets overall. I enjoy them, you know, occasionally as well. You're around like-minded yeah. people and you're still talking about yeah. something everybody shares a passion for. But, sure. uh, you know, if that's the only activity going on every year, it's, you know, I think that's a, it's more of a missed opportunity to do something creative and, and get new eyes and ears on it than, uh, than what you're going to get from the same people showing up every year to the same event. Yeah. I have, you know, you mentioned millennials and different interests there. You know, for me, I'm a Gen Xer. I got kids. So, you know, I get like one night a month, maybe when my wife and I get to go out, you know, what are we going to do? Is it going to be go to a banquet? <laughs> Maybe yeah. not, especially if if there was something else as a as a different alternative, you know. Right. So, 
Absolutely. Well, Ben, is there anything else you wanted to touch on on this subject? I know, I know there's a lot of stuff going around, especially social media wise. So is there anything specifically you'd like to address on this before we close it out? No, I, I think we covered all the bases. It's, it's really tough. Uh, and that's why I really appreciate you guys and the opportunity to be on other podcasts, you know, to have a longer conversation because it's such a tough thing. Everybody digests things in social media snippets and you can't get, you know, that full picture out there. So working through the details with you guys is a great opportunity and I really appreciate it. And we're doing our best to keep communicating. Uh, I'd love to see people following us on Instagram at rough grouse society People can follow me directly see what I'm up to at Ben Jones underscore forest wildlife. Of course, visit the rough grouse society webpage. There are frequent blog articles up there. Uh, there are various state chapters, uh, state Facebook pages for the rough grouse society. So uh, find some of those resources and just, uh, just keep up with us. And of course we would love to have your ship. We've got some promotional stuff going on, chances to win some, upland gear so uh, check us out on the web and join us perfect sounds good well i appreciate you coming on again and and i enjoyed the conversation i hope everybody this answers a few questions on their end and uh yeah nothing else we'll see you guys next week thanks for listening to this month's gdiy spotlight if you would like to see more on this month's featured organization please check out our facebook and instagram at gundog it yourself you can also find the organization's link through our website at gundogityourself.com. If you have a suggestion for a nonprofit that could be a good fit for future episodes, please send an email to us at gundogityourself@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.